Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is episode 12, Dead Man Working, part 5, a further theological reflection. Before we go any further, a brief explanation. As those following this podcast will know, it has been a long time since the last episode went to air. In part, the delay has been caused by my commitments in my professional life. As a minister currently in congregational placement, I have commitments both locally and in the wider church that necessarily take precedence over producing this podcast. Normally, I am able to balance the two reasonably well. Unfortunately, about two months ago, my ministerial commitments became such that I was forced to put this podcast on hold while I attended to those commitments. Unfortunately, about a month ago, and just as I was on the point of getting this podcast back on track, I suffered a significant medical reverse that required a lengthy period of recuperation. I am now largely over that situation, and at last have a space in which I can turn my attention back to Ergasia. Nonetheless, I would like to apologise for the delay, thank all my listeners for their patience, and add that I sincerely hope that this will never happen again. Of course, I can't guarantee that won't be the case, but I have my fingers and a few other things besides crossed that normal service will now be resumed. But enough of that. Let's get back to the subject of this episode, a further theological reflection on the book Dead Man Working by Carl Saderstrom and Peter Fleming, published by Zero Books in 2012. It will be recalled that Saderstrom and Fleming used the image of the zombie apocalypse to describe the landscape of post-industrial capitalism. Building on the idea of zombie economics, the notion that corporate capitalism is a system of dead ideas which nonetheless maintains its grip on the way in which global economic activity is organised. Saderstrom and Fleming set out the ways in which the zombie economy realises its capacity to infect and colonise every aspect of human life and thereby indefinitely perpetuate its own dominance despite the sterility of its central concepts. It is thus that our humanity is reduced to a ghastly simulacrum of real life, whose only function is to perpetuate the status quo of the corporatist state. Corporatist capitalism, Saderstrom and Fleming argue, exists only for its own sake, and work by hijacking human life has become the primary vehicle through which this self-perpetuation occurs. 
The bulk of Dead Man Working is taken up with a discussion of the various ways and means which people undertake in order to escape our entrapment in the dehumanising realities of corporatist capitalism, only to conclude that they are all futile, emblematic not of any effective resistance to the zombie apocalypse of post-industrial capitalism, but of the very measure of human enslavement to its dead hand. What then do Cedarstrom and Fleming propose as the solution to this dilemma? Dead Man Working contains a strange short coda in which Cedarstrom and Fleming discuss the idea of the child as the locus not merely of resistance to the dehumanising effect of corporatist capitalism, but as the vehicle through which human civilization will recover its very humanity. In an era in which we no longer are able to distinguish ourselves from our work, in which the very essence of what it means to be human has become hopelessly co-opted by the inhuman logic of neoliberal consumerism, the child becomes the very image of recovering our humanity from the wrecked and irredeemable project that is the working adult. Sederstrom and Fleming argue that in order to escape the universally corrupting logic of the market and the corporation, humans must detach both their own personhood and their social relations from this logic. It is no longer good enough to merely resist or find an exit strategy. Rather, the entire fabric of corporatist economy must be jettisoned in an act of existential and relational liberation. For Cedarstrom and Fleming, the child who within the cold logic of the world of working adults is helpless and powerless is the very acme of this liberation not because the child represents a countervailing power that enables us to resist corporatism, but because the very helplessness of the child is emblematic of a withdrawal from the systems and enculturations to power that hold us captive. It is not by meeting power with power that we are set free, but by withdrawing from the whole schema of power itself. For Sederstrom and Fleming... The child represents a human strike, a withdrawal not of our labour, but of our very selves, from the dead world of post-industrial capitalism. Sederstrom and Fleming acknowledge that this withdrawal is very difficult to achieve, precisely because the power of the zombie economy is so insidiously all-consuming that it causes us to mistake its prerogatives and interests for our own, indeed, for the whole of reality itself. Thus, corporatist capitalism causes us to confuse what we produce for our common good with this mode of capitalism. But if we are to achieve this withdrawal, we must resist the temptation to confuse life and its conduct with labour and employment we must not reduce our bodies and faculties to resources, nor confuse life's directive and improvisational energies with the injunction to toil or the desire to submit to or exercise the boss function. In other words, we must become like children again, 
unencumbered by the false promises and dead-end hopes which our enculturation into the logic of neoliberalism encrusts our being. Only by doing so can we remove ourselves from the very apparatus and infrastructure of power that holds us in thrall. Only by doing so can we imagine and engage a life-affirming, truly social existence that is the antithesis of corporatism's rigid hierarchy of control. How then does a Christian theology of work respond to Sederstrom and Fleming's call for a human strike, a withdrawal of the essence of our humanity from the dominating systems of power and death exercised by post-industrial capitalism? Oddly enough, and in much the same way that I argued in the last episode, that Sederstrom and Fleming's argument about the appropriating nature of work in the post-industrial context weren't anything new. So I also suggest now that the Christian perspective on work has already dealt with the idea of the child as a withdrawal from enslavement to power as well. For just as through the biblical witness, our attention is drawn to the wrong way about nature of the assumptions and presuppositions from which our cultures and societies proceed, so also does it point toward the answer to those states and the dilemmas to which they give rise. Just as Jesus challenged the understanding of taxation as an instrument of control by secular or religious institutions, so he also used the idea of the child to challenge the idea of power and authority as the governing principle of human life. The relevant passage occurs in the Gospel according to Luke, to wit. People were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it they sternly ordered them not to do it. But Jesus called for them and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. The social and historical context of this passage is that it was written within the framework of a gerontocracy, a culture in which age, and the wisdom which was associated with long life and experience, was highly prized as a resource for the proper conduct of life. In such a context, youth was not so much despised as seen as a state of ignorance which was to be treated with kindly indulgence until such time as the individual had lived long enough and had sufficient experience to take their place in the governance of society. In the meantime, the young were encouraged to acquire the wisdom of the elderly through diligent study and obedience, and to largely remain silent. Superficially, this seems the direct opposite to the culture of modernity with its so-called cult of perpetual youth. Yet that cult does not worship, respect or even value youth. Rather, it commoditizes and dehumanizes it reducing youth and the attributes of youthfulness to mere selling points and aspirational objectives 
that facilitate further consumption. The culture of the gerontocracy could and did assume the dimensions of patriarchy and oppressive control, but it did at least possess the virtue of seeing youth as potential wisdom, a resource for the common good that could be brought to maturity with careful nurturing and guidance. And yet Jesus directly challenges this paradigm, and the reason he does so can be discerned from the very beginning of this passage from Luke. People were bringing even infants to him so that he could lay his hands on them. The word even is compelling. In the original Greek in which Luke was written, the passage reads something like, and they also brought to him small children. But it is that phrase, and they also, which conveys that sense of even. The bringing of children into Jesus' presence is deemed inappropriate, because he is far too important and esteemed a teacher to have his time wasted by children too small to learn anything from him. That's why the disciples react the way they do, not because they have anything against children, but because their encultured predispositions cause them to assume that only those capable of learning from Jesus are worthy of being brought into his presence. But Jesus instead rebukes the disciples, and in doing so, points to the negative impact of enculturation. For while it might provide us with a framework for life and a mechanism for social organisation, it also blinds us to the potentials and freedoms of human existence. Paradoxically, to what we might learn and what we might become, if only we had not allowed the learning of our cultural context to encumber and limit our perceptions and faculties. Oddly enough, this passage from Luke, in which Jesus rebukes the disciples because of their response to children, foreshadows B.F. Skinner's famous observation that education is what remains after what one has learned has been forgotten. So what is the point of Jesus' rebuke? How can mere infants inherit the kingdom of God? What Jesus is alerting us to is the role of openness. Now this is not the kind of uncritical, open-to-everything openness one encounters in the do-it-yourself spiritualities of self-helpism and new ageism. On the contrary, this is openness that is itself an engaged, critical self-reflectiveness that is alert to the ways in which we bind ourselves to cultural and other encumbrances that in turn blind us to the ways in which we enslave ourselves to economic, political and social systems of control. In other words, it is the kind of openness that does not only contain the qualities of curiosity and adventurousness, but which is also rigorously honest, and which reminds us when we confuse the prerogatives and interests of a particular form of human organisation with the reality of what it actually means to be human. And this is the message 
which Jesus conveys through his rebuke to the disciples. Do not confuse what your cultural assumptions and baggage say about the kingdom of God for the kingdom itself. It is that confusion which lies at the heart of all tyranny and oppression, and it is only by approaching the idea of the kingdom from the perspective of a child, from a perspective not just unencumbered, but alert to the process of encumbrance, that the kingdom is to be embodied and realized. Even as children receive life as a gift, as a joy and a delight that leaves them vulnerable to the systems of power and control by which they are surrounded, so that very vulnerability also places them outside the paradigms of power, which our cultural processes declare to be normative and appropriate to the full flourishing of human life. After all, in order for those systems of power to exercise any dominion, children have to be educated into their veracity and all-pervasiveness. But it is the very vulnerability of children that represents a withdrawal of life from dehumanizing systems of power. And to the extent that age and experience confer wisdom, it must be an alertness to the necessity to remain outside those structures of power outside these culturally ordained bounds of human flourishing. Thus it is that a Christian understanding of work not only intersects with but predates Sederstrom and Fleming's notion of the child as the image of resistance to post-industrial capitalism. The child is the one who is ultimately vulnerable, of no power and significance within a system of control, that exerts its influence through culturally endowed notions of what constitutes normative human reality. But it is that very lack of endowment that sets the child free. Unencumbered by an indoctrination into the inevitability and necessity of life organised along neoliberal lines, it neither requires liberation from its baleful effects, nor needs to resist its corrosive influence. The child is already free precisely because its status as vulnerable and powerless places it outside the social contexts and systems which neoliberalism values as its primary mechanisms for control, power and self-replication. The challenge for adults is not to return to a state of childishness, but to surrender the impulse to power so that we are no longer tempted to succumb to its blandishments, nor captured by the desire to be legitimized by its constructs. In order to occupy the ground of powerlessness that ultimately sets them free, adults need to recapture the openness that not only alerts them to the dangers of enculturation, but also allows them to relinquish obedience to its demands and dictates. This image of the child as the liberation of the human person points to the liberation of work itself. Freed from the controlling prerogatives of an ideological matrix, work serves both the dignity of the human person and the facilitation of the common good. In other words, work once again becomes a means to an end 
rather than an end in itself. When we no longer confuse who we are with what we do, we likewise release work from the confusion of ends with means. From the Christian perspective, work is not the end to which human life is oriented. Rather, it is a means, and only one means among many, through which human life is properly geared toward relational coexistence and care for the natural world. Of course, part of the hold which zombie economics of corporatist capitalism exerts over us lies in its capacity to suggest that such a view of work is naive and misguided, and that in any event the complex interconnection of financial, capital and trade markets in modernity makes such a decoupling and realignment impossible. But that objection falls flat once we recognise that it itself proceeds from the enculturation which post-industrial capitalism uses in order to cement its control over our lives. In other words, it is a self-serving and circular argument. For once we recognise that the interconnections of modern capitalism are not the same as relationships and relational coexistence, but are instead expressions of domineering and oppressive power, we understand at last how deeply we have come to confuse such connections for a genuinely human life together. Moreover, we understand how deeply enslaved work has become to the prerogatives of that power, warping its creative and directional potential toward the deadlands of the modern economic landscape. Sederstrom and Fleming's book Dead Man Working is both a powerful indictment of the oppressive realities of work in modernity, as well as a chilling portrait of the way in which work has been warped and manipulated in order to infiltrate every aspect of our lives with the controlling paradigm of neoliberal economics. They offer few, if any, solutions, but in pointing to the image of the child as the powerless non-person who subverts the entire system, they are, probably unconsciously, drawing attention to the subversive claim located within the gospel, namely, that the kingdom of God lies not in the hands of those acknowledged by our enculturation to be wise and authoritative, but those whom that same culture dismisses as of no importance whatsoever. This ancient Christian claim, nestled within the biblical witness, declares that it is insufficient to liberate the human person from the clutches of a controlling ideological matrix. What is also required is the liberation of work itself from the confusion of means and ends, so that work may once again become not the arbiter and determinant of who we are, but one means among many of manifesting what it means to be human, relational, and engaged with God in the ongoing unfolding of creation.
And so we have come to the conclusion of another episode of Ergasia. Once again, my apologies for the delay in putting this episode to air, and my thanks for your patience in the interim. But that, for the moment, is all for now. Many thanks to everyone who has been listening so far, and to those of you who have supplied comments, feedback, or suggestions. To leave your thoughts on this podcast, or to offer any ideas, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. In the meantime, I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.